everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 uh, with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, uh, which we were excited to resume in September of 2021 and look forward to a full slate of events, hopefully in 2022. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to bring you a thought leader, actually in a few different categories, but Avik Roy uh, is a fantastic American thinker, uh, entrepreneur as well. Uh, he's the president today of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which is a nonprofit think tank focused on expanding economic opportunity uh, to those who least have it. Uh, Avik was born to Indian immigrants in Rochester, Michigan, a place that instilled in him a lifelong fondness for the Michigan Wolverines, who are just coming off a, a great victory last week in football, and hopefully not tonight against my beloved uh, Tar Heels, North Carolina, in basketball. Uh, but he's also a fan of the Detroit Red Wings. But he finished high school in San Antonio, Texas. I know currently resides in Austin, Texas, uh, where USA Today named him to its all-USA high school academic first team, honoring the top 20 academic seniors in the country. After training as a scientist at MIT and as a physician at Yale Medical School, Avik moved to Boston to join a then-unknown investment firm called Bain Capital, uh, where he focused on identifying biotechnology companies, developing therapies for diseases that had heretofore gone untreated. Avik has been a central figure in the debate over how to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, he developed a plan with his colleagues uh, at the FREOPP uh, for reopening the U.S. economy while COVID was still enduring and still endures and changing the debate about whether partial reopenings were possible uh, starting back in the spring and summer of 2020. A second plan focused on safely reopening schools, which has become a hot button issue, uh, certainly in politics over the last six months or, or throughout the pandemic, really, and colleges and shaped policies around the country in the fall of 2020 as well. Uh, like I said, he lives in Austin with his wife, Sarah, and two young children. He also wrote a fantastic piece recently on Bitcoin and the U.S. fiscal reckoning, another area of expertise that Avik has that we're going to touch on today as well. But hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital which is a global alternative investment firm that owns uh, right around $1 billion of Bitcoin in our flagship funds, which I'm sure uh, Anthony will get to. And I think he and Avik see eye to eye on sort of the, the case for Bitcoin that people like Michael Saylor also make and have made on this show. Uh, but with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Are your mother's proud though, right? I mean, let's just go right to the mom, right? Avik, you let's know, tell, talk about your mom. She's, she, I mean, I'm reading the resume. The resume's off the hook. I mean, your mother's like, on cloud nine, right? How many times no, no, did she call no. you a day? Let's, I tell you what, my mom there. never forgave me for never becoming a doctor. She basically thought I was a failure well, for true. most of my life. Then yeah, there was no, a brief true. period when I was a prop trader at JP Morgan and my business card said vice president at JP Morgan. And then I was okay. Cause like she could brag about that at cocktail parties. She couldn't explain the rest of the stuff. So that was the only time I actually made it in my mother's eyes. Well, when I told my mother, I was joining Goldman Sachs. She was, is that a law firm? <laughs> I said, no, Ma, it's not a law. Jesus Christ, why aren't you a lawyer? Anyway, so here we are. But I think she's very proud of you. So I want to go to your mom and your upbringing. Tell us in your own words how your upbringing led you to go in this direction with your career. Wow, uh, that's a very deep question. Um, I think 
You know, what I'd say is that my, um, my parents were very high-minded people. They very much believed in, you know, doing what's right and working hard and, um, and not taking, uh, not taking the easy route, not taking the shortcuts, but, uh, uh, but doing your, you know, conducting your life with a certain sort of, you know, high-minded goal, I guess you could say. And for my dad, it was, he was a scientist. He wanted me to be a chip off the old block and be a scientist just like him. And he almost succeeded, but I realized I was too dumb to be a good scientist. So, uh, you know, three years at MIT with a, with a, a lot of Nobel laureates around me made me realize I was not as good as they were at science and decided I didn't want to do that. Uh, and then I thought I'd go into medicine, but um, uh, really my passion was, uh, was, um, bigger social problems and bigger uh, intellectual problems, bigger business problems. And uh, I was in med school during the nineties when the dot-com thing was happening. I, I'd been, I'd been uh, exposed to the internet very early on in the early nineties. I remember when NCSA mosaic had been installed on the, on the max in the basement of the Yale med school dormitory and thinking this is the coolest thing ever that was going to change the world. And I should drop out of Yale medical school, go to go to work for this random guy named Mark Andreessen at the university of Illinois. And uh, didn't do that because I didn't have the guts to do that and stayed in Yale Medical School. And of course, Mark started Netscape and did a bunch of other impressive things with his life. Um, but I never forgot that lesson of, hey, you know, I had a front row seat in the Internet revolution, didn't do anything about it. But I've also had a front row seat in the biotech revolution. And I have an opportunity to do something with that. And out of med school, I got recruited by Bain Capital to help them understand genomics and biotechnology. This is in the early 2000s, the Human Genome Project had just been completed. And are there all these biotech companies with $5 billion valuations? And that was a lot of money back in 2000, 2001. So, uh, so they were hiring people with scientific backgrounds as a lot of hedge funds were in those days to, uh, to help them understand the biotech industry. So I spent a dozen years basically doing that, evaluating clinical trial data, looking for winners and losers, overrated companies, underrated companies, the stuff that again is on, on CNBC a lot now, but back then was a relatively obscure uh, asset class. And uh, uh, that's what led me into the Romney orbit, as, as we talked about. And, and, and so when Mitt ran for president the second time in 2012, he and his team asked me to help him design his health reform plan. And that got me off on a completely different track, which is uh, trying to solve our not only our, our problems with uh, the healthcare system as it works today, how expensive it is, but m arguably more importantly, how much healthcare and the cost of healthcare drives our deficit and our debt, right? Because our deficit and debt and the growth in federal spending is driven by Medicare and Medicaid. That is the 80-20, if not the 100-0 of our fiscal problem is the runaway growth in healthcare entitlement spending. And so I realized that this was a really important problem. And that, uh, as a side note, is what got me into Bitcoin as well, because I was very concerned about the fiscal monetary problems that stem off from the runaway growth in healthcare entitlement. So on my in my day job now, uh, I do a lot of work in public policy. I'm the policy editor at Forbes. I run this think tank called the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, where we try to solve not just the healthcare entitlement problem, but a lot of these uh, problems with our economy in which uh, there are, are, are uh, uh, suppressions of economic freedom that prevent lower income and lower middle class Americans from rising up. Our whole thing is that Economic freedom is the most progressive idea that's ever been invented. And we try to come up with new ideas, new reforms to help uh, people on the bottom half of America's economic ladder to rise up. And that's been uh, it's been incredibly fulfilling work. And uh, uh, I think I think my mom is 
is probably okay with with the fact that I that I do that kind of work now. She 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 believes in it and she sees. I think I think when I started going on MSNBC, she was more impressed. She's 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 a bit on the liberal side, and so uh, she was never impressed when I was on Fox News. But when I was on MSNBC, she's like, okay, this guy. You're not you're not running Dr. Oz's campaign for Senate. Can we clear <laughs> that up right here on Salt? No, you're not doing that. So, so yeah, your mom's, is your mom like my mom? Is she telling people that you're still a doctor? Like she probably is, right? My mother still tells people I'm a lawyer, even though I never Yeah, practiced. you know, I, yeah, I was, it's like what I learned about my mom is there's this These kind immigrant of this cocktail moms, party man, test. Like if she can't explain in a cocktail party, I, I failed, you know, and that's right, why the exactly. J.P. Morgan thing was great. And now she can kind of say, well, he does this thing with Forbes and he's on TV sometimes and they seem to be okay with that. So I, I think she's kind of, I finally got married and had kids. I think that was probably the, the major thing I did to rectify myself in her eyes. All right. Well, I'm proud. I'm proud of you. Okay. This Italian American is proud of you. So let me, let me go to healthcare first. Then we're going to go to Bitcoin. You are now the healthcare czar of the United States. You have 535 votes in the Congress and you have the president's signature. Okay. So you got it. Okay. What are we doing? Is the healthcare problems in the U.S., are they fixable? And what do we do about this entitlement spending? Is there any way out of the situation that we're in? There absolutely are ways out of it. Um, as you alluded to, part of the challenge is political, right? Getting getting Congress to vote for something and for the president to sign and to have the public support for it that can, that can allow all those uh, votes to go through. But I would argue, and we've argued this on our, on our, uh, in our materials, on the papers that we've written, both for our website and for the Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, and everywhere else, is that you can look to certain countries in Europe. It's a misconception that if you don't have the American system, the only alternative is single payer. That's not true. Yes, Canada has single payer. The UK has something even more, you know, socialized. They have really truly socialized medicine, where the government's not just the insurance company, but it also employs all the doctors and runs all the hospitals. Um, but there are countries in Central Europe, like Switzerland in particular, Germany, the Netherlands, that have universal health insurance, but using private insurance. There's no Medicare. There's no Obamacare. Well, there's sort of Obamacare in the sense that the private side of Obamacare is there. But basically, it's all private insurance. There's no public option. And what they do is instead of our system, where we basically create all these incentives for healthcare to be super expensive, what they do is they say, we're going to subsidize the cost of your insurance if you're really poor or if you're really sick or really medically vulnerable. But if you're you know, earning enough to, to buy your own health insurance, you're going to buy it on your own. We're not going to give you any subsidies to buy it. And amazingly, if you subsidize it less, it's less expensive. Uh, and so uh, they have universal coverage with private insurance, and they spend a half to a quarter in terms of government spending, what we spend. So there are ways to actually make healthcare more universal but also cheaper if we address the problems in our system that make us subsidize, over-subsidize healthcare for people that don't need the help, and also create a lot of crony capitalism where we're basically saying, if a pharma company wants to jack up its price by 20%, Medicare will pay the 20% increase, no questions asked. So the taxpayers are on the hook for that price increase. It's not really a free market system, right? There's no consumer saying, uh, I don't like the 20%. I'm, I'm going to go with a different drug. And that's not just true of drugs. That's true of everything in our system. It's true of doctors. It's true of lab tests. It's true of hospitals. So we have a system in which we subsidize healthcare for everyone, but we don't have any mechanisms to make it competitive so that people can compete on price. And the end result is a runaway inflation. Would you mean test Social Security? 
I think you can do more means testing for sure. And so in, in terms of Medicare and Medicaid, you know, you asked what's the solution if I were if I were czar for a day. And, and a big part of the solution is the means testing. That's what Switzerland does better than us, right? So means test much more aggressively than we do. Just by doing that, like you and I, Anthony, we can afford to buy our own health insurance. There's no reason why we should get a tax break or a government subsidy through Medicare to buy health insurance. Why should other people pay taxes so that we can get subsidized health insurance? So let's fix that. And then the next thing is to tackle a lot of the problems, and there's a bunch of them, that make healthcare artificially more expensive in the US. One of those monopoly power, another one is this, this subsidy of all the price increases. There are also re regulations that drive the cost. There's a whole menu of stuff that we talk about on our website uh, around reducing costs. So if you do those two things, if you reduce the underlying cost of healthcare, it makes it less expensive to subsidize. And if you reserve financial assistance for the people who really need it, you, you spend less money in terms of the government. You do those two things, you basically solve the entitlement problem. Okay. But you're worried, okay, because you're not czar. And we know that you're not czar. We know you just wrote a brilliant piece uh, related to the crisis that we're in. And so you're worried, and I'm worried. And your National Affairs article, the title was Bitcoin and the U.S. Fiscal Reckoning. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us why you wrote that, and tell us the um, ominous observations that you're making in that essay? Well, the whole reason I got into public policy in the first place, actually, is because I was sitting at my Bloomberg terminal during the financial crisis, and I'm looking at everyone talking about Portugal and Ireland, Italy, and, and you know, all that, the pigs. And, and uh, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, the U.S. debt to GDP ratio is just as bad as those countries, but there's no Germany to bail us out if we go down the tubes, right? So what are we doing? And you know, it becomes very apparent the moment you dig into any of this stuff that Medicare and Medicaid, as we've talked about, are the biggest drivers of our deficit and debt. And so I thought, well, I have some opinions about why our healthcare system is, is so expensive. And, and, and that's how I got into healthcare policy and, and got into all these uh, uh, other things involved in presidential campaigns and the other things that we talked about. My interest in Bitcoin kind of evolved in parallel to that, right? Because, um, to me, when I, I first, I, I'd heard about Bitcoin from the beginning. I had a bunch of friends who were in the, into the Austrian economics movement, which is very aligned with Bitcoin and also gold buggery, I guess you could say. And uh, so they've been in my ear about it from, from the beginning, from 08, 09. But I didn't take the time to really buy it myself until about 14, 15, because I just, I was too intimidated by the idea of running my own node and coding my own wallet or all these other things that I thought I had to do. Um, but I'd, but I'd always been intrigued by Bitcoin on two levels. One, as from a portfolio management standpoint, because it's at that time, and I think still today, I would argue it's an uncorrelated asset, right? So if you're in a bunch of other stuff, it's, it's, it's an uncorrelated asset that's good for portfolio management. And more importantly, um, it's designed to basically be this alternative, monetary alternative to the system that we are basically, the track that we're on now, which is we have this debt that keeps piling up year after year. At the end of uh, George W. Bush's presidency, the, the debt was $8 trillion, Now it's $29 trillion, right? These numbers are getting really, really big. We're not doing anything about it. If anything, we're going the other direction. We're piling on more and more deficit spending. During, certainly during COVID, we did that. And the, and the thing that has been uh, particularly alarming about the last couple of years, though this was, this was concerning during the financial crisis as well, is how much we've expanded the Fed's balance sheet to absorb all the slack in uh, the market for treasury bonds, right? So we, 
we issue all this debt, we run up all this debt, uh, as your listeners and, and viewers know, right? The way that debt gets uh, uh, financed is by the issuing of treasury treasury notes, bond bills, and people have to buy those buy those bonds. If they if they don't, then interest rates go up in theory, right? But the Fed now basically said, screw that, we're going to dictate what the interest rates are on, on on various maturities, and that works for a while. But over time, what happens is you are basically creating printing money out of thin air, as you know, Anthony, to, 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 to find the money because the Federal Reserve doesn't have money on its own, right? So it, it, it doesn't have an appropriations from Congress to do this. So they basically print the money. They use that to then buy the debt and that suppresses interest rates and that works for a while. But over time, it doesn't work. There's about $250 trillion, depending on how you count it, of global wealth, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, gold, et cetera. Um, at what point does the U.S. federal debt get to such a share of global wealth, global assets, that there's just not enough money left in the rest of the world to buy the treasury bonds, right? We're getting close to that point. And so the reason I wrote this article for National Affairs, and I know this is sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but the reason I wrote this article for National Affairs is because it became clear to me, and it's been clear to me for a while, that Washington doesn't really understand why Bitcoin is something they should pay attention to. They've certainly heard of it. They've seen the charts. Um, they certainly hear a lot of noise about it. Uh, but, but you know, basically people look at it as, you know, the, the sort of typical view in Washington is Bitcoin is a highly speculative asset, you know, that where people could lose their shirts if it goes down. And, but otherwise it's basically magic internet money and it's kind of fake and, and people shouldn't care about it at all, right? But the real truth is that, uh, a question that people ask a lot, people ask this on in, the, in Wall Street, people ask this in Washington is, well, if deficits and debts, debt matter, why have we not paid a price for it, right? We've been running deficits and debts for 60 years, basically since 64 or so, and nothing really has happened. And people ask, well, so we should be able to continue to do this because like nothing's happened yet. And what I walk through in the piece is, if you understand why the treasury bond market works the way it does, you understand why there's been this artificially inflated demand for treasury securities. And that has helped us kind of get through and have these low interest rates and borrow money ad infinitum for a, for a period of time. But that's going to run out. And the alternative is going to be Bitcoin. Unlike what a lot of people think, I don't argue that Bitcoin is a replacement for the dollar. I argue that Bitcoin is a replacement for treasury bonds. And that's actually a much more significant development, I would argue, because at the end of the day, if Bitcoin is a place where people can park their money, you know, what was the, uh, was it Paul Tudor Jones or Ray Dalio who said, you know, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. Um, you know, if, if you know that you're not going to, you're going to have a negative real return on a, on a treasury bond, but you can have positive real returns on Bitcoin, you're going to put more of your money there because it's more, it's more sound than the treasury bond. And over time, that erodes the ability of the U.S. to borrow money. And so this is the reason why Washington should care, because we're running up all these debts and we're not going to be able to pay them off simply by issuing treasury bonds in the future. And if that's the case, you're going to have two choices. You can either ban Bitcoin to force people to own treasury bonds effectively, or you can allow Americans to protect themselves of the from the irresponsibility of their government. Which of those paths are we going to choose? Okay, so there's a lot going on there. 
<laughs> Sorry right, about so that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, 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 no. It, it was fascinating. I, I, I'm a big believer when someone's saying fascinating things, you keep your mouth shut and you listen. Okay. But there's a lot there. So I'm going to ask three questions. Um, they're all related to each other. And then I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy because, you know, he's like a millennial like you. And, you know, I have to do that because I have to make sure that the ratings go up for the salt talks, you know, otherwise, I mean, last time we did something, I wasn't there and he's getting fan mail saying, don't bring Anthony back. I mean, it did hurt my feelings. I have to confess that. Okay. So I'm well, only going to disclosure, Anthony, I, I'm Gen X. I'm not millennial. Maybe, maybe I should be, but I, I'll take that as a compliment though, that you thought that you, you're Gen X. So you're slightly older than a millennial. Yeah. But you're not a baby boomer like me. I'm a baby boomer, man. This is bad stuff. Okay. So, so, and we ruined the country. Let's face it. The baby boomer generation, absolutely. The nihilism, the narcissism. I mean, we totally destroyed the country. So, but, but, and you guys have to figure it out. You have to save the country. So first question, and again, it's, uh, keep it short because I got to turn it over to Darcy. So the first question is, uh, what do you think of modern monetary theory? Is it bunk? Can we can just continue to print money ad nauseum, never repay the debt, have hundreds of trillions of dollars of deficit spending, no biggie? What's your theory there? Yeah, it's bunk. And most, even Paul Krugman thinks it's bunk, which tells you that it's bunk. But here's right. the problem. We're operating as if we are all believers in modern monetary theory. No if you question. actually watch how yeah, Congress runs its budgets, 100%. that's MMT, right? So That's Stephanie Kelton right there. She's saying, no problem. We're already doing MMT. So stop trying to pretend you're against it. Okay. So we both think it's bunk and it erodes middle and lower middle class living standards. And we can prove that empirically. Okay. So number two question. Okay. Uh, is it fixable? Winston Churchill once said that America always does the right thing after we exhaust every other possibility. So are we going to do the right thing here or are we going to go over the cliff? Well, it's definitely fixable. I mean, that's why I put out all those reams of white papers and website articles to try to walk through how we could fix it. But the political incentives of our system are not to do anything, right? It's to keep coasting along this, let's print money until we're really punished for it. And so I worry that, you know, as investors, we always think about base case scenarios, right? I think the base case scenario here, if we're objective, is that we don't fix the problem, that we go over that cliff and we have a crisis in which the Fed loses the ability to just print money to buy treasury bonds. And what happens then? Boy, none of us can predict for sure. Okay, last question. I'm turning it over to the 1980s movie heartthrob, John Darcy. I mean, literally, that's what they call him on the fan notes. Horrifying at But any event, ready? Last question. Go. Where Where is Bitcoin in a year? 12 months from now. So like it's at what? Let's say it's at 57 today. Um, I'll say 250. 250,000. Mm-hmm. We can sort of end the salt talk there, John. There was no need to have you on the salt talk. Okay. You just said Bitcoin's going to 250. So thank you for joining Salt Talk. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, John. He has amazing questions for you, Abic. And when your mother listens to this, please, I don't want to hear from your mom, oh, John's questions were better than Anthony's. Okay, I don't want to hear it. Go ahead, well, John. And, and and you know, I mean, price predictions, as you know, are are a funny game. So 
um, uh, we, we can revisit that. And, and I don't I, I don't even mention price in the National Affairs article precisely because um, I, I sort of look at it as what's my long term price target, right? I think that's what's more important. I would say my long term price target is between 400K and a million because 400K is what gets you to the market cap or market value of gold above ground gold. And uh, I think you and me and, and people like us believe that Bitcoin is superior to gold in a lot of ways. So at the very least, it should have the market value of gold, and that gets you to 400K. So that's really my- I, I totally believe I Listen, I totally believe that, but go ahead, John. So I want to back up a little bit, and I want, to, I want you to give us a history lesson, which you, you wrote uh, about this history in uh, the, the fiscal reckoning piece that you did for National Affairs. It's something that Anthony talks a lot about, too, and I think it's important for people that, that don't have a full understanding of it to get this history lesson, which is what happened at Bretton Woods? What happened in 1971? Why did it happen in 1971? And what's been the result of that fiat currency experiment and the abandonment of the gold standard? Well, there's a, a great book that recently came out by Jeffrey Garten, who had been the uh, dean of the Yale School of Management called Three Days at Camp David, which walks through this history really well. I, I recommend it to anyone who, who really uh, is interested in, in, the, in the nuts and bolts of all this. But basically what happened was we had this Bretton Woods agreement at the end, and not at, technically at the end of World War II, it was actually a couple of weeks after D-Day when this conference happened in, in New Hampshire. But basically the idea was that the, the, the allied powers said, let's get together and figure out the post-war economic system. And the post-war economic system they came up with was the U.S. dollar would be the world's reserve currency and every other currency, the U.S. dollar would be pegged to a value of 135th of a troy ounce. And then every other currency among the allies would be pegged to the U.S. dollar at a, at a fixed ratio. And this would be the world monetary system. And uh, that worked for a while. But the problem was, you know, the U.S. was doing pretty well after World War II. The rest of the world was rubble, right? So as those countries started to grow, particularly West Germany and Japan, um, and they rebuilt their economies, and they started selling Mercedes and Walkman to, to the U.S., the U.S. dollars would leave the U.S. to Germany and Japan. Uh, we'd get their products. But the end result is all these other countries that were trading with the U.S. were accumulating dollars. Um, and those dollars were redeemable for gold. And so uh, we were generating a massive trade deficit and also starting to run budget deficits because of Vietnam and the Great Society in the 60s. And the end result was you have a trade deficit, you have uh, fiscal deficits, and those dollars are leaving the U.S. shores and, and being sent to other countries that either own treasury bonds and can redeem them, or they, they, they're, they're getting, the businesses are getting the money from the U.S. and then redeeming it to, at their central banks for their own currency. And then the central banks, the Bundesbank, say, is selling those U.S. dollars back to the U.S. to get gold. The problem was, over time, there wasn't enough gold in the U.S. because the dollars kept getting inflated. There were more and more dollars being printed to address these deficits. And we got to a point in 1971 where there were $60 billion worth of claims on U.S. gold reserves, but only $11 billion of gold in U.S. reserves, like in places like Fort Knox. And so this is a real problem, right? Basically, there was effectively a kind of run on the bank scenario where the Nixon administration, uh, which had been a party to this problem, right? Nixon had printed a lot of dollars because he was terrified he was going to lose in 1972, he was very sensitive to the fact that the last time he'd run for president, uh, he he feels like he had lost. He had felt like he had lost because of an economic crisis or recession. So he wanted to prevent a recession. So he thought printing more money was a way to do that. And he really he was really close with the then Fed chairman, Arthur Burns, 
uh, and and really badgered him and cajoled him to to print more money, and he did. And uh, the end result was we 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 basically were in this we had this run on the bank where all these countries were like, hey, the U.S. has eleven billion dollars worth of gold, but we have sixty billion dollars lying around here. What are we going to do about that? We better get our gold out before anybody else does, right? And so this was a pretty serious crisis, and. Um, uh, Nixon gathered his senior economic advisors in, in in August of 1971 in Camp David to try to do something about this. And they came up with a three-point plan, which was uh, wage controls to basically suppress price increases, uh, tariffs, mass, basically, a, basically a, a kind of a trade war to basically prevent other products from coming in the country, um, and also uh, an elimination of the gold standard or the peg of the U.S. dollar to gold. And the last of those three things was actually the thing that got the least amount of attention. The wage controls and the price controls and the and the and the tariffs were the things that most of the coverage uh, uh, revolved around at that time in 1971. But the departure from the gold peg was the most important because all of a sudden, basically out of nowhere, kind of accidentally, we ended up with the system we've had ever since of free floating global exchange rates. And we might all think, well, that makes perfect sense, free-floating global exchange rates. It's like a free market. Um, but I think we don't appreciate that that's only a 50-year-old system. It literally was 50, year old, 50 years old last August. And, the, and while there are a lot of things that are good about free-floating exchange rates, the biggest disadvantage of free-floating exchange rates is it allows countries like the U.S. to run up massive deficits. Because in a gold standard type system, you can't really do that because you run out of gold. In a free-floating system, you can run these deficits, and we have, and that's what's creating the long-term problem we have today. So, you know, like you mentioned, fiat currencies are a relative game where uh, maybe that makes sense in theory. You know, the dollar just by default, despite the massive deficits that we're running relative to other global currencies and global governments, we are stable and responsible. So the dollar has not suffered uh, in a fiat currency regime to this point. But then, then enter Bitcoin, which is really the, the first credible non-sovereign currency that has principles of sound money. So uh, Austrian economics, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto certainly uh, studied Austrian economics, and a lot of the original principles in Bitcoin are rooted in Austrian economics uh, and the principles of sound money. So why is the predictability of money supply so important for a well-functioning currency and for a well-functioning economy? And what impact do you think the rise of Bitcoin could have on the dollar as sort of the global reserve currency? Well, first we should say, I mean, what's gold trading at now? 1,800 uh, Troy ounce, right? So, you know, it went from 35 to 1,800 over the last 50, uh, 50 years. That's not that's not a great preservation of the value of the US dollar. And, and Anthony's old enough to remember that plenty of asset managers made their coin in the 70s basically owning gold. Uh, and, and and on that basis, right, that gold was going to appreciate relative to the dollar, and the dollar was going to lose a lot of its value because of this departure from the gold peg. So Americans suffered from massive inflation in the 70s. It was a thing that sunk the Carter presidency, even though it was arguably Nixon's fault. Um, and it didn't uh, it didn't turn around until Reagan and Volcker raised interest rates dramatically and, and wrestled inflation to the ground. Something that until this year, really, we we've kind of uh, we've endured with that general regime and had that stability, as you mentioned. But now that stability is starting to erode. And um, Bitcoin is is uh, is potentially a, a, a catalyst for further erosion in that regard, because um, what is Bitcoin? There are only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be minted or mined. 
And it's kind of like real estate on, on Central Park, right? There's only so much of it to go around. And so if you've got that Central Park view, you know, that's going to appreciate in value or waterfront property, waterfront real estate. It has a scarcity value. Its quantity cannot be eased. And so its value goes up, even though a two-bedroom uh, two house in, in the Burbs would be just as functional, right? People want that proximity, location, location, location. Uh, John, as, as someone uh, who, who's involved in real estate peripherally, you, you appreciate that very well. So Bitcoin is like that in that it has a scarcity value, it has a fixed supply. And because it has not merely a fixed supply, but a very predictable supply, right? It doesn't go up or down. It stays exactly the same. That means that if you own Bitcoin, you know that whatever happens to Bitcoin, its supply will not increase. Even when you own stocks, right? We all, as, as owners of stocks, know that companies will offer, you know, will they make secondary offerings, they'll do all sorts of things, or they'll do stock repurchases, and we factor that into our investment case. What's the fully diluted share count, right? Uh, Bitcoin is fixed. There will never be any expansion of its share count, so to speak. Uh, and so that's a big advantage to Bitcoin, it's better than gold in that respect. Gold, the quantity of gold in the world doubles actually every 60 years or so. The quantity of Bitcoin stays constant. So it's scarcer than even gold. It's the hardest asset uh, that's liquid that's ever been invented. And what's the what's the kind of competition there with the treasury bond, right? So the problem with the treasury bond is there's more and more and more of those treasury bonds being issued, but fewer, fewer buyers over time. One thing I talk about in the National Affairs article is the fact that the share of ownership of treasury bonds by foreign governments and foreign institutions has declined dramatically in the last 10 years, whereas the share owned by the Fed has gone up dramatically. And that's uh, very alarming. We're going to get to a point in the, perhaps in 10 years where the Fed owns more of the treasury bonds outstanding than any other entity in the world. I mean, that's Latin American monetary policy, right? And we see this all around the world when this happens. There's inflation, there's depreciation of the currency, and there's a flight to sounder safe haven assets. And Bitcoin over time is emerging as, as the premier sound money safe haven asset. I'm going to assume you're not in the camp that the current wave of inflation that we're experiencing is transitory, that you think this is going to be uh, sort of a secular shift as we come out of COVID, or, or maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I think that Jay Powell has officially retired the term transitory in his, in his uh, commentary. So I think the, the team transitory has lost that debate. But uh, just to give a, a very wonky uh, example of why uh, inflation is not transitory, home price inflation alone is, 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 is captured in a lagging way by CPI and PCE. So um, year over year, home prices have inflated by 25%. But the, the home price components of CPI and PC have only gone up by about 6%. And that's because of this weird owner's equivalent rent thing that, that CPI and PC use where they survey homeowners and ask if you had to rent out your house, how, how much do you think you could get for it in rent? And like, unless you actually are renting out your, your home, you don't know, right? So spending a lot of time on Zillow. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a lagging indicator. And that alone guarantees that we're going to have uh, that the official measures of inflation, CPI and PCE, are going to see high inflation in 2022 and 2023, purely because of the home price uh, inflation being a lagging indicator. And that doesn't include all the other elements of inflation that we may continue to see. So for those reasons, it seems clear to me that, that the official measures of inflation are going to continue to be pretty high over the next couple of years. Obviously, the Fed could intervene to try to change that trajectory, but they've been very, very cautious 
in doing so, as we all know. Um, and so it, it's not clear that they are as concerned about this problem as say, as I say I am. Right. So Anthony asked you a question earlier that if you were the healthcare czar of the United States, how would you try to wrestle you know, our current healthcare situation into, into a better situation? Um, I'm going to ask you a question. If you were the economic czar uh, of the United States, so let's say it's Treasury Secretary or Federal Reserve Chair, or whoever has the magic wand is able to dictate crypto regulation. We talked earlier about how Bitcoin really provides this alternative refuge for people that don't love the dollar and, and what the U.S. government is doing to the dollar through these large deficits, but they also don't love any other global currencies for, for other reasons, you know, similar reasons that you don't, wouldn't like the dollar, but, but they're even more stark uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, so you're, you're thinking, okay, Bitcoin could be uh, detrimental to the dollar and its global reserve currency status. Would you then go out and ban Bitcoin? Would you nip it in the bud right now and say, you know what, we're going to either criminalize it or we're going to tax it very onerously? Or would you take the other approach and say, you know what, we're going to embrace the fact that Bitcoin is here. It's part of our future in terms of technology, in terms of a new version of sound money or a new version of gold. How would you go about regulating Bitcoin and crypto? Well, I talk about this in the National Affairs article where I say, look, I mean, the temptation in in Washington is going to be say, well, we don't like the fact that Bitcoin is is competing with the treasury bond. So let's just ban Bitcoin or at the very least, you can't really ban Bitcoin as a network. It's like banning email. It's like it already exists. You can't really ban it. But what you can do is you can make it really hard for people to exchange U.S. dollars for Bitcoin. In other words, to buy Bitcoin because the U.S. government controls the banking rails, which would allow you to exchange U.S. dollars for Bitcoin. They can make that a lot harder, particularly when it comes to institutional uh, uh, trading of, of Bitcoin and, and USD, right? So that's something the government may be tempted to do. That would be a, a counterproductive, I argue, in the piece on, on multiple fronts. First, because you know it's again, it's Latin American monetary policy, right? This is what Venezuela does. This is what Argentina does. They say, okay, we you can't exchange your Venezuelan bolivars for USDs, and what does that lead the rest of the market to think? It leads the rest of the market to think that you're incompetent and don't have confidence in your own currency. And that leads to more capital flight from the Bolivar to the USD, not the other way around. And the same would be true, I worry, with Bitcoin. If the US government would say, we're afraid that the mighty US dollar can't compete with Bitcoin, therefore we're not going to let you buy Bitcoin, that would set off alarm bells in every uh, capital and every large financial institution in the world say, look, we got to get out of our dollars because even the U.S. government doesn't believe the U.S. dollar can compete with Bitcoin anymore. So I think that would be a mistake. It would also be a mistake because uh, for those of us who actually want Americans to, 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 to be okay uh, and, and to be able to get through this crisis, this fiscal crisis that we're in, they're going to need a way to protect themselves from inflation. And Bitcoin is the best way for ordinary Americans to protect themselves from inflation. So we should allow them to have that tool. So I think the most important thing the government has to do is not ban Bitcoin. In fact, go in the other direction. Uh, I've been uh, disappointed that the SEC has been so hostile to a spot Bitcoin ETF. As we all know, ETFs are a really important instrument, particularly in retirement accounts and other uh, vehicles, pension funds and the like, for people to actually invest in Bitcoin. And the futures-based ETFs are, are really inefficient instruments for a lot of a lot of th- reasons that, that that your audience will understand. But a spot ETF would be much cleaner, uh, and for various reasons that are really about regulation and le- legal ease rather than than financial efficiency, 
the SEC has not wanted a spot ETF. So a spot ETF, I think, could be something that could help ordinary Americans buy Bitcoin without having to own their own keys if they don't want to. Obviously, it's better if they do. But broadly speaking, I'd say we should move to a system where we are making it easier for people to own Bitcoin, whether through an ETF or through the native asset. And we should make sure that we don't do the opposite of Bitcoin, which is to create a central bank digital currency, which would basically be um, you know, the Xi Jinping model rather than the Friedrich Hayek uh, free market model. And we, we were recently at a conference with uh, Jeremy Allaire, who's the founder of a, a company called Circle that backs USDC, which I'm sure you're aware of. It's a, the second largest now uh, stablecoin, US dollar stablecoin. He made a very compelling case for why the, the US government and other global governments shouldn't create their own CBDCs, which, as you mentioned, are basically authoritarian tools for you to monitor uh, the, the flow of capital and spending and, and things of that nature. But uh, proper regulation and plugging into these stablecoin networks could allow the US to enjoy the benefits you know, uh, of the technology of stablecoins and, and uh, you know, zapping people money and things of that nature uh, without some of the, you know, more authoritarian aspects of CBDCs. Um, you know, some of our, our Bitcoin maximalist friends say you should do things like, you know, create a, a Bitcoin savings account for every child born in the U.S. or do some type of universal basic income with, with Bitcoin or something like that, which, um, you know, interesting ideas to think about what that would look like and what impact that would have on our society. So Anthony asked you a question about will the, the U.S. government eventually do the right thing? You know, will they realize that the spending is out of control, that we're creating inflation that's having a detrimental impact on our middle and lower income uh, citizens of the country? Does Bitcoin provide that incentive or that check that we needed as a government to rein in our spending? Because, you know, like we talked about before, uh, fiat currencies are, are a relative game. Uh, right now, the U.S. has not been punished at all for its fiscal recklessness, if you want to call it that. Um, does Bitcoin provide that check and balance that we need to rein in our behavior? I think in the best case scenario, it does, right? You think about corporate tax rates and how um, in 2017, we, we reduced our corporate tax rates because there were all these inversions happening with companies moving overseas just to avoid US corporate tax, tax rates. Um, in an ideal world, something similar happens with Bitcoin where the rise of Bitcoin tells the US government, look, we can't just print money ad infinitum because people can flee to Bitcoin. So we've got to do more to bring our fiscal house in, in order. That's that's my optimistic hope. Um, but, but as I mentioned in the piece and I've talked about today, we can't assume that that's what's going to happen. I think we have to have the base case scenario that the US fails uh, to solve its fiscal problems because we see no evidence and certainly nothing in the structure and incentive of Congress to suggest that, that the pattern is going to change in terms of people spending money that they don't have. And so the most important thing we have to do is protect the ability of people to own Bitcoin. We have to prevent the U.S. government from having this kind of China-style central bank digital currency, which there's a reason why China is the leading edge of developing central bank digital currencies, because they understand it's a way to basically monitor every financial transaction you make from you know when I went to CVS or what, whether I bought Diet Coke or Coke Zero, like you'll be able to know all that if, if you have a central bank digital currency. I don't want the government to have that level of information and it allows a certain amount of control into deposits. They can deposit money into my account, they can take money out. Saul Omarova, President Biden's nominee to run the office of the Comptroller of the Currency, she's a big believer in central bank digital currencies for precisely these reasons. She wants to basically have the power at the Fed to you know, increase or decrease your bank account, savings account at will. Um, so that's a real problem. And then the other thing you brought up, John, that I think is really interesting is uh, 
you know, we, we often ask the question, or sometimes we ask the question, why is it the people don't save anymore for their own retirement, for their own rainy days? Well, I would argue that a big part of why we've lost the culture of saving in America is because there's no return if for any money that you put in a CD or a checking account or a savings account, right? There's no interest. So on, and that's on, on by a, design, and that's by, by design, design, right? By design, and 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 this is the thing, like you know, Bitcoin. One of the things that Bitcoin does to anyone who's really spent a lot of time with it is it totally inverts that. Like you realize, wow, like I could buy a really nice car right now, or I could keep that money in Bitcoin, knowing it could be worth two, four, ten x in a few years what it's worth today. And that completely transforms your attitude about consumerism. You're much more interested in saving your money than you are in spending it. But today, people are like, hey, my money's going to be worth less if I park it at the bank tomorrow than it is today, so I might as well spend it. As you say, that's by design. We've decided that that's good for the economy, to, 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 to take money out of our savings and spend it to stimulate the economy today. And that's totally you know, bass-ackwards. Uh, and but that's the culture we've created, and it's a real problem. And hopefully, Bitcoin can help us return to a culture in which saving for the future is is something that's in our own self interest. I thought that was going to be my last question, but I want to ask you one more question, and it's about the politicization of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So, I think you're still a Republican. You know, you're more of a Romney. Uh, you know, Rick Perry. You you help support Republican. Marco Rubio Republican than you are a Trump Republican. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's the way I see it. But there's a there's a major divide uh, that's that's developed in Congress and in political circles that liberals equals Bitcoin is bad. It's a right wing, you know, libertarian idea. Uh, and in right wing circles, they say, you know what, the liberals hate it, so we're going to support it. We think it's great. Uh, that's, that might be an oversimplification. There's people like Ro Khanna you know, in the, in the Democratic Party that we think is a very intelligent uh, analyst of Bitcoin and, and he understands very well the promise in terms of financial inclusion uh, that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies bring. Why has that uh, divide developed so starkly? You know, Anthony and I have talked about this on previous episodes before, about how libertarianism really, in a lot of ways, is a more left-leaning uh, ideal than, than it is, you know, some some people perceive it as being a far right idea. Um, but why is that that uh, divide developed? And do you think it's possible to bridge that divide in some way and educate people like Elizabeth Warren and other people on the left about the promise of Bitcoin and other uh, elements of crypto in terms of financial inclusion? Yeah, it's a really important question, John. And, and you know, just so you know, like at FreeUp, we, we work with everyone. We work with, you know, anyone who will take our phone calls. We worked with the White House under President Trump. We work with the White House under President Biden. We work with Democrats and Republicans in Congress. We really try to work with everyone precisely because if you want economic freedom and free enterprise and innovation to succeed in America, you got to work with both parties. Because the fact is, unless you get 60 votes in the Senate for stuff, so long as there's still a filibuster, you're going to have to work with both parties, right? So that's something that's very core to our business model is we we don't write anyone off based on what 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 letter they have next to their name. Uh, but having said that, I think when it comes to Bitcoin and crypto more generally, I am concerned that we are starting to see a sort where uh, it's more Republican-ish or liber you know libertarian conservative-ish to support these things, and um, and less so on the left. As you said, it's split. I mean, you have Ro Khanna, you have Ron Wyden, who's pretty 
uh, pro-Bitcoin and crypto, pro-innovation, pro-financial inclusion, even though he and I would disagree on a lot of things related to tax policy, we're aligned on that. Um, so it's not completely partisan today. And I think that's important that it not be partisan so that you can you can have better legislation than we have today. But I, I'd say that on both in both parties, there are also people who oppose Bitcoin and crypto, right? I think there were certainly people in uh, the Trump orbit who were very hostile to or suspicious of Bitcoin yeah. on the Trump premise that it would be a challenge. It's un-American. You know, we talked about how Bitcoin threatens the dollar. He himself has been very vocal that he thinks it's un-American and it harms the dollar. Thus, it's not something that we should allow or pursue. Right, exactly. And then uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, I, I think for people like Elizabeth Warren, people who are on the true progressive left, they're fundamentally and inherently suspicious of anything that falls outside what they call the regulatory perimeter. If it can't be regulated, they, they're, they're going to be hostile to it. They want to bring it inside the regulatory system. And Bitcoin fundamentally is something that lives outside of any governmental system, right? Uh, and, and so that's something that I think people on the left are, are going to always be hostile to about Bitcoin. So there are things about it on both the left and the right that people don't like, and there are things about it on the left and the right that people do like. And that's just uh, you know the nature of politics in 2021. There you go. We'll keep up the great work. We try to bridge those divides at SALT. You know, we are a nonpartisan uh, platform. We've had President Bush and Clinton and Biden and and the people from the Trump administration certainly uh, have been at our conferences. So we're trying to to educate people on on uh, issues not of right and left, but what we think are, are right and wrong and, and progress versus regress. Uh, but Avik, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Again, your article uh, about the U- Bitcoin and the U.S. fiscal reckoning is a must read for anybody that's involved in crypto or wanting to educate themselves about sort of the macro story uh, around why Bitcoin is compelling. But Anthony, you have a final word for Avik before we let him go. Listen, I, I appreciate your voice and uh, the rationality of your arguments. Just the, I guess the thing that I'm puzzled by and somewhat upset about is that there's not a lot of people listening to this level of clarity. So we have to figure out a way to make that happen. Hopefully I can help you do that. Well, I appreciate that, Anthony and John. Thanks for all you do. I'm big fans of your work and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Likewise. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Avik Roy. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access the entire archive on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media at Salt Conference is where we are most active, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love educating people on a variety of issues, but especially these issues uh, relating to to public policy and how we fix some of these problems that we have in our country and in our world. Uh, But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.